0: This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. I'm Kelly Browning, and to God be the glory.
1: Well, this last year during the pandemic, Kelly Browning, a member of our church, gathered a team and decided that, that they would produce a podcast, and she's done that. And uh, the podcast is called All at Once, and it addresses women's issues. In fact, one of their taglines says, this is a podcast for women and all who love them. So that's a whole lot of us in this room. And they have addressed issues uh, about women's suppression, especially in relation to religion and women's suppression or freedom. And in their first season, uh, Kelly interviewed several women from our church. My wife Rochelle was one, Cindy Dawson was one, and Laura Porterfield was one. And when I listened to the, the episode with Laura and Kelly, they discussed Proverbs 31. And that's what Molly just read. And some of you may know Proverbs 31 is kind of a famous passage that holds up this noble woman. And my wife Rochelle has for a long time said it's one of my least favorite passages in the scriptures rather than my favorite because it creates all these expectations for what a noble Christian woman should be like. And so when I heard this podcast and when Kelly and Laura discussed Proverbs 31 and what it means to be a Christian woman, I I thought this would be perfect for Mother's Day. And so instead of a message from me this morning, you're going to hear a message from Kelly and Laura, and we're so thankful that you're willing to do this. And so God bless you as you speak to us.
0: Thank you, David. Yeah. Uh, Well, hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Browning, and it feels super good to be up here with my friend, Laura. We're gonna dive into the text of Proverbs 31, but before we do that, there are three things I'd like you to know about me first. Number one, like David said, I produce and host a podcast called All At Once. Uh, There's my face and you can see it. You can um, check it out wherever you get your podcasts, but I'm excited for Laura and I to try something new today for today's sermon. We are recreating a tailored version of the last episode of the podcast first season. The second thing, I am nervous. <laughs> Being up here creates a lot of tension within me because the sermon portion of church meetings has been forbidden from me for my entire life until I started attending this church eight years ago. I was raised to believe that this very act, Teaching you a group of people that also has males in it, in a church, is sinful, unbiblical, and just wrong. So I want to kind of breathe in and absorb as much of this experience as possible. So that I can look back at today as an anchor in my faith and my life of God's goodness and faithfulness. Number three. I'd like to share with you the heart of this. Why are we having these conversations with you? Do me a favor, everyone. Think of one really godly woman you know, a woman whose life with Jesus you admire. And I want you to keep that woman in the forefront of your mind as we work through this topic. For me, I was trained to believe that the label of biblical or godly woman was reserved only for women who embody the character traits on the left side of this T-chart. She is... Quiet, submissive, agreeable, keeps her strong opinions to herself. She's easygoing, sacrificial, an early riser, lives for her children. She's a 100% stay-at-home mom without any distractions outside of her home, and she's obedient. And on the right, that's me. (laughs) I am opinionated, driven, aggressive, career-minded, outspoken, independent, decisive, resilient. I question authority a little bit or a lot bit, depending on your perspective. (laughs) I'm also a disruptor with a streak of rebellion and many, many things outside of my home interest me. And so for a long time, I was ashamed of these traits. I believed I was deeply flawed for having them. And I worked tirelessly and I still do at times trying to force myself into the mold on the left to be like the godly women I was taught to believe is most pleasing to God. But the truth is that many of the traits on the right were gifted to me by God, and others were formed out of a need to protect myself and survive varying forms of trauma. Laura is about to explain more about that, but spoiler alert, the traits on the left and the traits on the right are both traits of biblical women. So why Mother's Day? Why are we talking about this topic today? So many times on Mother's Day in our hopes to celebrate moms, what we actually do is we accidentally reinforce some harmful ideas regarding motherhood and womanhood. For me, growing up, Mother's Day sermons were always centered on the traditional aspects of motherhood, mainly that she sacrifices everything for the sake of her children. She sacrifices her free time, her education, her aspirations, her body, her friends to care for her children. Not with me, if you've heard some of those messages, right? That good moms sacrifice everything. Well, here's what I took away from those sermons. I know myself, and I know if I sacrifice everything beyond my body to grow a human life and to then birth said life, that sacrificing my identity on top of that will not be good for anyone. I mean, come on, right? Parenting is already so difficult as it is, as Bobby told us earlier with his (laughs) (laughs) perfectly timed misreading. (laughs) But now you're telling me that in order for me to be a good parent and a good mom, I have to give up everything I enjoy in order to do that well. I guess I'm just never getting married. I will never have kids. I will be a lone wolf, a trailblazer out on my own. And as you know, God had different plans for me. I did get married, and I have two beautiful sons who I am incredibly thankful for. But instead of these distorted messages about motherhood and womanhood going away, they actually grew louder. They screamed at me as I went through these life transitions. When I got married, I felt like I'd never measure up as a wife. And when I became a mother... I constantly fell short of what it what I was taught it meant to be a godly mother. So I can't help but wonder if any of you ever feel like that, that you'll never measure up as the person our culture tells you you should be. During my Advent testimony a few years ago, I was newly and secretly pregnant with my second son, Wilson. And during that testimony, I shared how harmful some of how harmful some of these ideas were to me. I believed that there was a better wife for my husband and a better mom for my boys. I believed that there was some kind of mistake in our lives and that that mistake was me. Being near to Laura Porterfield and the many other women who don't fit the mold like I previously described, as I progressed through motherhood, these diverse models of biblical women quite literally saved my life. In that same Advent testimony, I shared that the two most powerful words in the Bible to me are, but God, but God, through this church and you, God's people, you showed me the truth of who I am and how lovingly, delightfully, and carefully I was created to be. And I hope you too find freedom like I did from whatever mold is holding you captive freedom from the shame and the darkness that comes from that. So today, on Mother's Day, Laura and I will share with you a more comprehensive picture of biblical women. So Laura, what are some actual examples of biblical women?
2: Well, Like you said, Kelly, often biblical womanhood is associated with the stereotype of a submissive, home-oriented woman whose ministry centers on hospitality and service. And while there are a number of godly women for whom this is a great way to follow God, it's dangerous to make all women who are devoted to God fit that mold. This may seem obvious, but I think that the starting point for defining what it looks like to be a biblical woman should be to look at the women who are actually in the Bible. Biblical women who have helped to advance God's mission. There are a number of women in the Bible who, from what we know of them, well on the left-hand side of Kelly's T-chart in terms of personality or the way that their scope of ministry is primarily in the context of their family or through hospitality. Examples include Sarah, whose main role in the story of God's people was that of being wife to Abraham and mother to Isaac. Similarly, all we really know about Elizabeth is that she was mother to John the Baptist and that she supported Mary early on in her pregnancy. There's Hannah who demonstrated faith and perseverance in prayer and her desire to become a mother and who was subsequently faithful in keeping her costly promise of dedicating her son Samuel to God. Ruth was a widow who as a result of her loyalty to her mother-in-law in the midst of loss, grief, and what seemed like a hopeless situation, earned a place as the great grandmother to King David and an ancestor to Jesus even though she herself was a despised Moabite, a foreigner. In the New Testament, Martha exemplifies the ministry of hospitality and caring for Jesus and his entourage of disciples and followers. One has to wonder whether Jesus's ministry could have been as fruitful as it was if it hadn't been for women like Martha, meeting the needs of him and his followers behind the scenes. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is probably the ultimate example of the power of motherhood. When she received the news of her upcoming untimely pregnancy from the angel, she responded with, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me according to your word. Through her obedience in carrying Jesus, she became the vessel through which God's word could be made flesh and dwell among us. The women on this left side may serve quietly, they may often be behind the scenes, but their role is no less powerful and no less vital to God's mission. But it's also important to acknowledge that there are lots of women in the Bible who belong squarely on the right side of the T-chart. Miriam, when she was just a girl, saved the life of her brother Moses through her quick thinking and her willingness to take a risk. She spoke boldly to Pharaoh's daughter, even though she herself was just a slave girl. Subsequently, Miriam became a prophetess and along with Aaron, helped their brother Moses lead the people of Israel out of slavery. Jael was a ruthless warrior who won a key military victory for Israel. Deborah, the prophetess, held the top leadership role in Israel for 40 years. Her official title was Judge of Israel, which was the same role of military and political leadership that Joshua and later Samuel held in leading Israel. Let me say that again. Deborah was the military and political leader of Israel for 40 years, almost half a century. Queen Esther was clearly gorgeous because she won a beauty pageant dramatic enough to put reality TV shows to shame, and yet once she was queen, Esther had the courage to step outside of her conscripted ceremonial role in order to use her wits and her position of power to save a people in jeopardy, even at the risk of her own life. In the New Testament, Jesus actually praised Martha's sister Mary when she skipped out on household chores and food prep in order to listen to his teachings with the men. Priscilla, who traveled with Paul on many of his missionary journeys, had a social standing and probably an education better than her husband's. Paul described Priscilla as a teacher of the way. Phoebe, the deaconess, was both devoted and well-traveled enough that Paul entrusted her with delivering his letter to Rome. Lydia, the first convert to Christianity in Greece, was a businesswoman. And Junia was a woman whom Paul not only lists as an apostle, but he goes so far as to say that she was outstanding among the apostles. Think of it for just a second. The apostles in the early church were a tiny elite group of eyewitnesses to Jesus's ministry who were specifically commissioned to preach, to teach, and to make disciples. And Paul lists this woman, Junia, as being outstanding among this small group of preachers and teachers. So when we look at this list of examples, one of the first things that stands out to me is the diversity of the women of the Bible. They served God in very different ways and all of those ways were needed. While these women had a wide range of strengths, what they all had in common is that they used their strengths for God and for God's people.
0: I love that these women, the women of the Bible are not the types of women who are often presented to us in Christianity. Yes, many of them do serve in more traditionally female ways, but just as many were also rulers, warriors, advocates, and outspoken disruptors, and leaders of rebellion. We're going to jump into the text um, next, but before we do that, I'd like to mention this tradition I learned from the late Rachel Held Evans. In her book titled A Year of Biblical Womanhood, the Jewish tradition that she studied says that Jewish men are to recite and memorize Proverbs 31 to the women in their lives anytime they want to praise or encourage them. It's like an anthem that men sing to the women to show respect and love to them. The everyday, ordinary, and extraordinary experiences of a woman award her the title of Eshet Shiel, or Woman of Valor, or a Proverbs 31 Woman. So Laura, how does this proverb function? So this
2: proverb is explicitly listed as advice given from a mother to her son who happens to be King Lemuel. Traditionally, the proverbs ascribed to Solomon, although there is debate about that among scholars. There's no one in the recorded list of Israelite kings who goes by the name of Lemuel. So it may be that Lemuel is a pseudonym for Solomon or another king, or it might be that King Lemuel is more of an archetype rather than an actual historical figure. While the proverb itself revolves around this woman of noble character or woman of valor, the proverb is about a lot more than just the woman. Anytime you talk about what to look for in a wife or in a mother, by extension, you're also talking about the family and how the family should operate. The type of wife that the king is advised to marry has a... profound impact, not just on the type of family that he has, but also on his life outside the home. I believe that there's some very intentional contrast between the family in this proverb, in which the members respect each other, praise each other, and seek each other's well-being, and Solomon's dysfunctional family. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And from what we know of Solomon's wives, they were not chosen because of noble character. Rather, they were typically pawns in political alliances or objects of Solomon's attraction. And despite all the high praise that we hear of Solomon early in his life for choosing wisdom over fame and riches, we're explicitly told in 1 Kings that Solomon's wives led his heart astray to worship other gods and that this led to the exploitation of other people. In the end, the historians of the Bible conclude that Solomon was not devoted to God, like his father David was. And I believe that Lemuel's name, which literally means devoted to God, is meant to contrast with Solomon's ultimate failure to remain devoted to God. Just like Lemuel's family is meant to contrast with Solomon's. While Lemuel's family sets him up for success, Solomon's family not only leads his heart astray, but also sets into motion a domino chain of events that led to the great kingdom of Israel collapsing into a conquered people in exile.
0: Laura, your teaching was actually the first time that I heard that this proverb does not function as a checklist for women, but rather a guide to this king, and by extension, males and the formation of his family, and to provide him with a model for living.
2: Yeah. In my mind, I picture Solomon writing this at the end of his life, at which point historians record that his heart was no longer devoted to God. And I picture him thinking back to the advice that his mother gave him many, many years before, and picturing a life in which he had remained devoted to God, and about that crossroads in which he could have chosen differently. This is my speculation, but if Solomon did write this at the end of his life, I think it's very interesting that the central decision at the crossroads that leads either away from or towards devotion to God revolves around the question of whether to objectify women, to use them to gain political power or to satisfy physical attraction, or whether to choose to marry a woman of noble character whom he respects and honors.
0: Molly Bays read Proverbs 31 for us earlier, and she did great, by the way. What can we learn from this text? So keep in mind
2: that we're learning about two things. The first is, what is an example of what a woman of noble character or a woman of valor could look like? The second is, how does that woman shape her family and community in the world around her? What we're gonna see about this woman is actually in stark contrast with our stereotypes of the Proverbs 31 being dependent or quiet. So let's look at some of the specifics about what the text highlights about this woman and her impact on her family and community. One of the first things we learn is that she is a sage businesswoman. Verse 16 talks about how she invests in a field and then uses the profits to plant a vineyard. Verse 18 talks about her being a profitable trader. And verse 14 compares her to a merchant ship with all that goes with that, with connotations of independence and a travel and adventure and being profitable. We learn that she's independent and confident. If we look at the language of verse 16, the passage doesn't say, at the bidding of her husband, she buys the field. It doesn't say she consults with her husband who advises her out of his vast business experience to invest the profits in a vineyard. She makes the decision about the field. She makes the decision about what to do with the profits. The passage specifically tells us that her husband has full confidence in her. The woman actually uses her own earnings to to plant the vineyard. And so there's a sense in which she's financially independent to some degree. We learn that she's also hardworking, which we see in verses 13, 17, and 27. We're even told that she has strong arms. <laughs> we hear that she's a provider in verse 15. And then we learn she's wise in verse 26. And I think something important to know about biblical wisdom is the connection that it has not so much with head knowledge, knowledge as with lived-out action. We learn that she's compassionate and generous, She mirrors God's heart and God's character by caring for those in need. She's the pillar of her family, and she's wholeheartedly living into who she is and into caring for the people around her, including but not limited to her family. Most importantly, she's a woman who fears, or another way to say that is reveres God. But her fear of God isn't just a spiritual or emotional thing. Rather, it shapes the way that she lives her life and as a result has very practical implications for her family and all the people that she comes in contact with. She's not praised for getting up early every day to have a quiet time, but for the works of her hands, which are the outflow of her love and reverence for God.
0: You said that a Proverbs 31 woman mirrors God's character and heart. How would you define that? The character of God.
2: (laughs) The best way to define the character of God is to look at Jesus. As the incarnation of God, Jesus is the clearest image we have of God, the fullest revelation we've been given of what God is like. And so we need to look at Jesus, look at what he said, look at how he lived his life, at his actions. What I see when I do that is that Jesus is passionately devoted to restoring broken areas of life. That would include spiritual brokenness and distorted theology. But it also includes uh, restoring social brokenness, which Jesus did by restoring people like bleeding women and lepers to society. And then also physical brokenness, which Jesus addressed by feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and even raising people from the dead. Jesus also identified so strongly with those on the margins that in Matthew 25, he tells us that he will judge us by how we respond to the needs of the least. He says, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. Jesus was incredibly compassionate and gentle towards people on the margins or suffering, that he was not afraid to be incredibly harsh towards people who were abusing power or causing suffering in others. So those are things that stand out to me about Jesus and about God's character, God's gentleness, God's desire to restore all things that have been broken by sin in the fall, and then also God's high expectation of us to respond to injustice and to respond to the needs of the people around us. And we see all of these characteristics displayed throughout Scripture, not just in Jesus, but in the entire Trinity.
0: So we've been talking a lot about women and God's heart, but this makes me wonder, is there a difference between being a woman of God and being a man of God? Let me give two answers to that
2: question. When you ask about differences between men and women in the context of the church— The underlying questions that people are often thinking about center on leadership and teaching and whether those roles are open to women. To be clear, the answers that our church and the larger Friends Church would give to both of those questions is an unequivocal yes, these roles are open to women. And that hasn't been the position just in recent years or even in recent decades, but for centuries, from the very beginning. Cindy Dawson does a great job in Kelly's podcast of addressing some specific texts that would seem to contradict this position. So I'd refer you to those episodes as a great starting place for understanding the way that the church has sometimes silenced women by lifting verses out of their specific context and specific cultural setting and applying them universally in a way that we haven't done with Paul's other instructions in the same passages. My own quick answer to this question about women in leadership and teaching, and I think that this reflects the heart of the friend's position as well, is that when we silence a part of the church, then the church and the world will fail to see the full image of who God is. To understand this, we have to go back to the beginning where we learn about the way in which God's image is imparted to humans. Genesis 127 said, God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. There's a strong emphasis placed on the way that God's image includes both male and female aspects. We actually see this throughout scripture. We have all the language of fatherhood and the comparisons of God to a husband, but there are so many female analogies that we often overlook like the language of God wanting to gather us tenderly, the way a mother hen gathers her chicks, or the way God's love is compared to that of a woman breastfeeding her baby. In Isaiah forty nine fifteen, God says, Could a mother forget the child who nurses at her breast? Could she fail to love the infant who came from her own body? Even if a mother could forget, I will never forget you. And so we see in God this very tender, gentle, nurturing side that we typically associate with females. Scriptures tell us that the church is expected to be the embodiment of Jesus in the world. We're called the body of Christ. God's image is intended to be manifested through us corporately. But when half of that image of God is silenced, then the image of God as manifested through the church is distorted. We've been talking a lot this morning about gender, but this is also crucial as well when we look at how racially and ethnically segregated church tends to be. There are aspects of who God is that we can only learn from people who are different from us and who have seen different sides of God. To give you a couple examples, in Costa Rica, I spent time among refugees from Nicaragua who were so destitute that they did, literally did not know where their next meal would come from. When those people prayed, give us today our daily bread, they meant that in the most literal, concrete, I need it to survive kind of way. They wanted bread. And those people, as a result, saw God as a provider in a way that I, with my pantry full of food, had never fathomed until I lived and worked among them and saw God provide. Likewise, our African-American brothers and sisters who have lived with centuries of groaning under unjust systems, when they hear that Jesus is above all principalities and all powers, That power means so much more to them than it does to those of us who have never truly known what it means to be powerless. Our brothers and sisters in Indonesia and other parts of Asia that highly value community know so much more about what the shared life of the church can look like than us Westerners with our individualistic lives can begin to imagine without them. Embodying God's image in the world as the church requires us to include and to listen and learn from all the diverse people in whom God's image is reflected, not just those who are male, not just those who think and look like us. The second answer to your question, is there a difference between being a man or a woman of God? What I would say is that we're so diverse in the ways that we reflect God's image We've been created with so many different strengths, skills, talents, and experiences. There may be certain characteristics or strengths that are more common in men or more common in women, but to try to say that there's one way of being a woman of God or one way of being a man of God is absurd. And we see that in the diverse ways that God called people throughout history. There's no one way to be a woman of God any more than there's one way to be a man of God except all of us should be following the commandments that Jesus gives about whole life commitments. The commandments that he says sum up the whole law and all of the prophets. Loving God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. If each of us is doing that in the way that God has equipped us to do it, And if we're working with each other to embody God's love here on earth, then we will be the children of God in this world.
0: Friends, I want you to think again of that woman who I asked you to envision at the beginning of this. And I want you to consider expanding that view in light of what we talked about today. So let's present a different T-chart. All of these traits are seen in biblical women and in biblical men. If you are like me, you probably have a mix of these traits. For me, I deeply love my husband and my sons, and I simultaneously feel this strong pull and calling to serve, speak, lead, and be wisely disruptive in the communities and organizations I'm involved in. All of these character traits are seen in godly people. By the way, this morphing of self to fit into a culturally acceptable gender mold happens to males too, and it's equally harmful. There is no mold for any of us. We are free. May we all celebrate our diversity and differences that make us unique and stop beating ourselves and others up for not fitting the mold. Because God thoughtfully and wonderfully designed each of us And God does not make mistakes. When I look out at our people, I see so many different types of men and women. Our personalities, strengths, flaws, and giftings are unique to each of us. God adores and delights in exactly who you are right now, who you have been in your past, and who you are becoming. You are fully known and cherished and meticulously crafted by the creator of the world. And that is worthy of celebration. Eshet Shael, Laura, you are a woman of valor and happy Mother's Day, y'all. Laura, will will you pray for us to end our time together? Creator God,
2: thank you for the way that as Kelly said, you've meticulously crafted and impressed upon each one of us part of your divine image. Help us to live without fear and without shame into the way that you've created each of us to reflect you to the world. May we love you so wholeheartedly and so completely that what the world says about what we should be like would pale in comparison to our delight in bearing an aspect of your image. Help us to come together in love as your church, as your body, not just in this building, not just in Friendswood or the U.S., but throughout the world. Through your power, Holy Spirit, unite the incredibly diverse building blocks of your church into a living temple that you inhabit. May we each joyfully embody you in the ways that you've created us to do so. And may we come together in love so well that in seeing your church, the world sees you in all your beauty, strength, and glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.